0: I was thinking today I might give up drinking and instead be a guy who's always eating a banana and drinking like a, a triple shot of espresso. I feel like that could be cool.
1: Oh, I mean, as someone who that is my lifestyle, all aboard. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Watching movies at the bar—a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. I'm Bethy Squires, and with me, as always, is Thomas Skriminski. Hi, Thomas.
0: Hi, Bethy.
2: How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. We're recording on the Lord's Day, which is a privilege we don't often have, and so I am uh, going to participate in this conversation, but also be thinking about heavenly things.
2: Sure, sure, sure. Give it all up to our Lord and Savior, JC Chasse from InSync.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: we stand. And joining us today is Addie Wyrich, who has a monthly show at Dynasty Typewriter called Everything's
1: Great. Addie, thank you for coming. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the Lord's Day in our Lord's Year 2020, uh, 2021. <laughs> Jesus saves. What would Jesus do? Jesus
2: would be on a movie podcast. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I knew that Addie was going to be good for the pod because we met at a bar At somebody's birthday party, Mm -hmm. and she just walked up to the group we were in, or maybe I walked up to her group and was just like, So, what are the like science fiction concepts that scare you right now? What are you (gasps) most troubled by in science fiction? That
1: was your opening. Was that my, I mean, that's a strong opener, and honestly, I even went, oh, when you asked it, because I was like, that's a good question. No, you asked it. Which I didn't ask. I know. Sometimes that happens is that someone says something that I've said to them, and I miss that context, and I go, oh, that's a great question. They go, I know, you You asked it. And I go, oh, okay, well, hey, it's what's your answer? <laughs> yeah, the one that was scaring me at the moment was like, um, or that I found really interesting was that I had just read an article about how, like, there's a theory that, other beings in like another universe or multi-universe created us and like but don't care about us because we're dumb they were like yeah we fucking made earth like like we're like a pocket universe or whatever in like a larger universe like of course there's beings that are smarter than us because how are we the smartest beings on earth we don't even know how to recreate life like we're just starting to um it was very fascinating and i think it set a really interesting bar conversation for the room for the
0: group (laughs) I think that's literally the premise of Prometheus, right? The, um, yeah, or it's
2: like, but well, that's of. like not a pocket universe. They just they like seeded the world right. with life because they were bored, and then like
1: died of boredom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems honestly even more like a Little Men in Blackie on like how there's a the universe inside of the dog's collar, like that's right. or, like, it's on Orion's Belt, and like it it feels like I think like the theory was that there's a bunch of aliens like in their little science lab and they're just like kind of creating universes left and right as an experiment and we just happen to be one of those weird creations and we think that we're all you know all crazy and awesome and it's like the milky way and all this is like eh eh, it's not that it's not that impressive like that that was the whole (laughs) so that's the energy that i brought into the into our friend liz's birthday party it was
2: (laughs) (laughs) and i said i was really stressed out by the concept of like The idea that like transporters or like teleportation rays uh, actually kill you, and that (laughs) right, like your consciousness is like transported, but your that physical body died. Like you have died, and now you've just sort of downloaded into some new meat. So like to your mind, you don't think you died, but one version of you did die.
1: That is really crazy. It starts to get really crazy when I start to think of organic for like organic material versus. Anything that's inorganic or any kind of like, well, how can my like brain juice and like meat sack like transfer or how can consciousness transfer? And then we get into the Lord's Day. Then we get into what is a soul? Can you make a soul? Are our soul, our souls real? If only there were movies that explored things like this. <laughs> uh,
0: it's, high time, it's high time there was a movie that explored the nature of the soul.
2: Yeah. Especially in like a sci-fi context with like a, like a really stacked cyborg lady.
1: Yeah. Or maybe uh Matthew McConaughey mm.
2: <laughs>
1: going fishing. Or maybe, or maybe a Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Who's, who's in the little, um, I was trying to describe it as like the, the space library where in, in Interstellar where he's like kind of thumbing through all those little like lines in time and space. Yeah. Anyways, this is not the movie that we watched for this podcast. <laughs> Not even honestly, not even close. I don't even think there's a single there's barely barely any science in the movie that we watched.
2: Yeah, we watched a movie with very little uh, greater import. I would say. Yeah,
0: that's part of what makes it a blast. Big time. Though.
1: Are we? Are we it?
2: It doesn't really
0: it? purport to be much more than perfectly. Oh, we're never gonna reveal it. People I know it's not like the title of the what podcast movie we're talking about. We're going to tell them at the end.
1: <laughs> it's a little, it, it's a little old movie that rhymes with Schmosen Schmevin. Schmosen from Evan.
2: Before we get into Smash Mevin, Addy, what is your relationship to watching movies at bars? Is that something you like to do? Or do you prefer to talk about movies places? What is your experience?
1: Okay, so I have ADHD, like pretty bad, and I only we only found out this like a year ago, and so it's been a year of me like being like, "Oh, that's how my brain works." Or, like that's why my brain does that. And I only say that because like I'm an only child and I grew up um I think watching more TV than movies just in general. Mm-hmm. Um like I also and also I because of like stuff that happened when I was a kid, I grew up really fast and so a lot of my friends were much older and like still to this day like are often 5, 6, 10 years older than me, which also just means that they have had a lot more time to watch movies. So I feel like I'm always like catching up and someone's like you haven't seen such and such and so so much of my life has been you haven't seen this, you have to see this. But then put put on top of that like being an only child with like parents who were like always working and never really Home and definitely not available to like hang out. um Watching a movie felt pretty lonely because I would watch the movie and then I had no one to talk to to t- talk with about it. Versus um watching TV, it kind of is a little more solitary. Like you might be able to find someone. Oh, are you watching The Office? Or are you? But it felt more like a community aspect uh, with TV and a lot less time too. Or you could watch it for a long time or a short period of time. So I I I don't re- I didn't really grow up watching like I would not say that I was a big movie person like, a movie-watching person growing up. I, I always wanted people to come over and hang out so we could watch a movie. Or, like, I, I was like, can we please go to the theater? So I was the person who was always getting people together in text threads to go to the theater. And I was the one who was, like, buying the tickets and then, like, asking for money back or whatever. It was very exhausting. Um, but um, – and so that's how I had my friends. Um, and so so in that sense, like, watching movies at bars – I don't think I have much of it. Like, I was like, oh, this is a really interesting podcast because there are movies that are playing at bars. And I think, honestly, because of my ADHD, I don't enjoy it. Because I'm like, what's going on? Why can't we get subtitles? (laughs) Why aren't there subtitles? Or, like, if I'm trying to watch the movie and then someone's talking to me, I was like, I can only focus on one of these things at a time. And depending on how good the movie is or how interesting that person is, like, one of them's got (laughs) to go. And oftentimes it's a little less rude to talk to the person. Um, uh, So I think sometimes when I watch a movie or if there's a movie on at a bar, it reminds me, it feels kind of more like, um, like I had a friend who at parties, he used to put on on his TV, like a train just traveling through Switzerland. It was just like this beautiful, like POV of a train. And so just kind of like nice images to be accompanied by. So it feels like movies at bars are more about curating and uh, curating a vibe, much like lighting or music choice. I really hate when it's just, like, a news channel. Because I'm like, well, then there's no, like, like, a channel that's playing TV, a movie. Like, well, you put no thought into this. Like, I'd rather be in a bar where it's like, every time you walk into that bar, there is a genre that is playing.
0: But what if yeah. the news anchor told you mm-hmm. that Danny, mm-hmm. Russ, mm. and the boys mm-hmm. pulled off the perfect heist?
1: So the problem is, is that if Ocean's Eleven was playing at the bar, I wouldn't talk to anybody. Because I'd be like, <laughs> we gotta watch this movie. And I, and I would, I would find the bartender and I'd say, can you put subtitles on and make it louder? And I and I and then and then the bartender would say, Uh, yeah, of course, it's Oceans Eleven. I don't know why we didn't have something subtitles on in the first place and then someone else would be like, Hey guys, stop talking. Everyone at this bar is trying to watch the best movie ever made. Um And that's how that and that would be and that would be our Friday night. And that would just have be what it was. And the news anchor would be like, Thank you and he'd turn off his own TV. Like that's how that would <laughs> I wanna circle back a little
2: bit to only child watching more T V than movies. Mm-hmm. This is also my experience. Oh amazing. As an only child of, of working parents, I watched TV constantly, yeah. you know, sometimes other movies on TV, but I did find it less emotionally isolating than watching a movie. And I don't know if it's because I like, I don't think it's because I found movies like isolating. It's more that like, there was a little bit of like, <laughs> um, an American tale, like we're looking at the same moon. Yeah. Thing. Like somebody is watching the same channel somewhere else.
1: Yeah, there is and that. And that kind of felt yeah. nice. I liked of being like, oh, we're all watching, you know. For for me, it was like, oh, oh, we're all watching Zack and Cody on Disney Channel at you know eight <laughs> p.m. or like, um, or even I don't know, even with uh uh with TV, I just I just thought of as, too. You're also being entered into a world, so it's like. A movie, sometimes the movie ends and you're like, man, I want to keep hanging out with those guys. I want to keep, I want to learn more about these characters that I fell in love with. And unless they make a sequel that might just disappoint you, there's no way that you can do that unless you rewatch it versus like The Office or like, you know, Big Bang Theory, Always Sunny in Philly, like Philadelphia, like these shows that have been going on for forever. It's because people just want to keep hanging out with those characters and living in the world. And it's like, those are my friends. And that's very yeah. attractive to an only child.
2: <laughs> I, I learned the the f- term parasocial relationships earlier than the rest of Twitter. Oh, mm-hmm. Um, It was when I was still in high school because it was I, – I was, like, hearing stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, that's how I think about Buffy reruns. I was mm-hmm. like, these are my friends. And, mm-hmm. and I read an article that was like, actually, parasocial relationships, when they're not, like, psycho shit – have some of the same benefits physically as having real friends. And I was like, good news for me, somebody who has more TV friends than real wow. friends at the time.
1: I will say this is really embarrassing for me to admit, but I I just kind of got over a, like, I would say pretty weirdly intense two-week parasocial relationship where I was like, I've met this person a couple of times. I think they would be obsessed with me. We are going to date. Like I like th- and I've never I've never thought this before. I've I've almost made fun of people growing up who were like, Wow, like my friend like Sarah really thought she was gonna marry Chase Utley when we were like thirteen. And I was like, ha, no, that's um, no, Sarah. And she was like, No, it's going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, That would be weird. That would mean he's a pedophile. Um, but I legitimately cleaned my house. My mom came to help. I when she was here, I was like, Listen, this guy's a celebrity. He's not going to date me if my house looks like shit. And we, like, decluttered my house. I cleaned. I got financial stuff in order. And by the end of the two weeks, I also was like, I like, it's like I came out of a fugue state and was like, whoa. And also I found out he had a girlfriend. And I was like, whoa, okay. So I got over him. And then... And it's, but but to be like I actually cleaned my home because I was like this guy is going to want to date me the next time I see him and I can't take him and he's gonna be and he's and I have to rise to the challenge and I like became a better person <laughs> without him ever knowing and I'm not gonna tell you the name of the person and he will never know either. But it, it worked. Steve it had the Blue's same benefit.
0: It? Yeah. It's it's George Clooney, which dovetails back with the conversation we're having. Get um, me to bring you back, Tom. My. Thank you. My, my experience of watching movies as a kid was very different. I ironically, like, watch TV by myself, but yeah. I have five siblings, most of whom are, like, way older than me. And so as a kid, I would, like, sit on the couch or on the floor while they were watching, like, A Night's Tale or The Matrix <laughs> or, like, The Empire Strikes Back. And that would be, uh, like, a social experience and something to bond over with people who otherwise have, like, nothing in common with me other than the same mom and dad.
1: Exactly. No, but I think that's exactly why I didn't watch movies and I did watch TV was because I was like, I was like, well, yeah, sure. You've, oh, what are we going to do? I guess we'll buy pizza and everyone just sit down, shut up and watch this movie. And that's like the babysitting or or whatever. And it's like, oh, I wanted that. So, yeah. So (laughs) I, when people like watch a lot of movies, I ask if they have siblings. And I'm like, did you watch with your siblings? And oftentimes the answer is, yeah.
2: This is interesting. I've never, I've never tried to put these pieces together before.
0: This conversation has never occurred to me.
1: Really? Never. Yeah. I think about being an only child all of the time, all of the time. I think birth order is very fascinating. My dad's also an only child. He also thinks it's fascinating. Um, we're like two weird only children who just like watch the world and are like, how do people share? What is that? Like, I get it. But like, how do they feel about it? <laughs> um, I know how to share. I know how I've taught myself to share. And I quite enjoy it. But what does it feel like to be young <laughs> Like, and t- to learn? And how to share. <laughs> yeah. Like what if you want to go to soccer camp and you can't because you have a sibling who their schedule conflicts. I have no idea what that is like. I only know that we can't go to soccer camp because we don't have money for it. But I don't know. But but it's not like oh we have the money but you can't because of someone else's schedule. Of course I'd want to kill my sibling. Cuz like I have cousins who are like babies right now and like they want to legitimately they make jokes about killing the other one. And I was like this is crazy. And then other people who have siblings are, like ah it happens. You just kind of want to kill your siblings sometimes. <laughs> Is that true, Tom? Uh yeah.
0: Okay. I uh I've been uh upset with my siblings before to yeah. varying degrees and for r- super different reasons. Yeah. Uh but I've never been driving a monster truck mm-hmm. in a cutthroat <sighs> race it. It. with my brother who has a remote controlled mm-hmm much smaller monster truck
1: tom if you just want to talk about the movie just talk about the movie (laughs) oh
0: no i don't i just sorry i i i've been reading a book about how to effectively moderate conversation
1: and i'm trying
0: some of the four tips they gave me
1: and was one of the four tips hey if you're with someone it's okay if he doesn't make you laugh because as long as he doesn't make you cry no because that's fucked
2: that line
0: that exchange is brutal
2: it's brutal it's fucking great so we are talking about Ocean's Eleven. Um, yeah. This is a movie that I believe the is... The Steven
0: Soderbergh yes. remake.
2: A movie that is very near and dear, I believe, to all of our hearts. Addie, what made you want to talk about this movie?
1: You know, it's... um Well, well you gave me a list of all these movies and I was looking at them. And I almost was like, well, they won't pick Ocean's Eleven because that's... Because they probably have already done it or they forgot to take it off the list, or, like, they have someone else who already called Shotgun on it because what a great movie. So, um, and I was like, oh, I guess I could do, like, a more niche one. But my instinct was Ocean's Eleven because in my mind, I'm like, well, everyone loves this movie. This is hands down across the board a movie that no one has a problem with, (laughs) Um, which is very funny to say out loud. And then also because my dad, you know, um, famously, historically, only child, um, he, there's, like, three things, there's three movies where if he's ever watching or, like, Scrolling through channels, he will if any of these movies are on, he will stop what he's doing because he's a writer. Mm-hmm. I like writes books and stuff he'll, for other people. He's a ghostwriter. Um, he'll stop what he's doing and just watch the movie. And it's Ocean's Eleven, The Hangover, and then like any documentary about World War II. Like those <laughs> <So> are like <laughs> Vegas and World War II, or like the he can't get jokes. enough can't get enough of the stuff he's a fucking obsessed and ocean's 11 I just so at any given moment in my life I will have gone downstairs into the living room at any time of day day night whatever and there is a I would say 30% chance which is high 30% chance my dad's watching ocean's 11 at any point in the movie because he he might come in really late like so he also like, hasn't seen the beginning of it in a while because it's very rare that he starts from the beginning he's just always catching it in like the beginning of act two so i was like oh this is great I can rewatch watch it and then after the podcast i can call my dad <laughs> <laughs> and talk to him about it um so that's, that's why i picked it
0: when you emailed us about oceans 11 your level of enthusiasm was so immediately evident and and I, I I immediately to Bethy was like we have to do this one and Bethy was like oh that's fine because it's one of my favorite movies yeah. and so it all came together I, I adore this movie this movie came out when I was eight mm. and I watched it shortly thereafter Whoa. and it's an odd movie in that it very much a movie for adults but I also kind of have this theory that Ocean's 11 is like just as appealing to like children because mm-hmm. like the action is so kinetic and the way people speak yeah. in each scene is so fun even if you don't really know what they're talking about like And
1: also the colors I was watching it and so being like this vibrant. is a pretty it is a pretty movie. I was like it's the editor so pretty. I could see the editor just calling the director or whatever being like dude this film is gorgeous. Like just shots even like I I literally made a note of like when the when Saul is just talking about um no not Saul um the guy who ends up being Zyger, the other old guy he yeah, was that's Saul. is that Saul yeah Saul he, when he was talking about like there's only ever been like three guys close to Robin oh, the bank that's and Ruben, it's like and yeah. little shots I'll get Ruben. and then the 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 last shot is um is that guy who like ran out and then when he like he gets shot and he like falls and the money like gets thrown up in the air and like the geography of the shot of like the way that the awning of the casino comes down the colors i like paused it and rewound it and watched it again just because it was beautiful and it was three seconds Mm -hmm. and it's like and it moves so quickly and also there's no nudity there's no like they don't ever have like full like sex sex sexy time right like no no so so and no one is like dying with blood being splat almost no violence either almost all like smarts and quick talking and if you don't really know what they're saying because they also talk in kind of like they talk in a fun way that if you're a kid you might just be like oh i don't really know what they're saying but i get the gist of it and then it gets better as you get older
0: you you mentioning the cinematography is something about this movie that i really love because steven soderbergh not only directed the movie but shot it Mm. like he he is the cinematographer on oceans 11 and that was something that he would continue yeah that he would continue to do throughout his career but like there is There is a way that this movie feels so breezy and effortless and, like, everyone is having fun. But also, like, he maintains such an incredible control of every aspect of the film. And and being the cinematographer on top of the director is just, like, he's he's just designing this whole thing.
2: Yeah. In interviews, he talked about that, like, this movie was maybe one of the most, like, laborious, like, stressful experiences of his career. Sure. Because it is so much more planned than a lot of like Soderbergh likes to like find the shot and sort of like use the camera in that way but this movie is so controlled is so like locked off in certain ways to help it feel it almost helps it feel breezier because you always feel like you are being like safely ushered from thing to thing it's like so slickly presented which is like not the most typical for Soderbergh's style so he was like mm. shitting his pants every day making this movie
1: well, the the movement the it feels like a it feels like a very well it feels like a very safe or like a very um structurally sound roller coaster- mm-hmm. where it's like you're not gonna like is the where what turn is the roller coaster going to take and it's like oh no we're just he's throwing you all over the place but with like a safe sturdy hand like even that match cut when um with Rusty in the beginning it's like he takes a drink uh and it match cuts so beautifully from like a scene to a scene there's a lot of match cutting mm-hmm. there's also a lot of like fading um fade like like a uh, 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 dissolve shots into one or the other and then the other oh my god who's the snivelly guy um the other thing is I'm bad with names and especially if there's a lot of white guys it's very hard for me to keep them all to the track the little um snivelly mousey man who's Livingston? the tech guy Livingston Who's sweating
0: constantly mm-hmm. just profusely yes, who's, throughout who's the sweating, movie who's sweating but not yeah. the guy
1: who's who sweats before the heart attack Livingston right. When they show him getting caught up in the dog's leash and then it just keeps zooming out and you're in the scene, like, that – That now knowing that he was the cinematographer and the director, it's like, yeah, that's perfect because he got to make that moment so beautiful by, like, pulling back and what great comedy. And then – because there's so much comedy in the camera – in the camera yes, shot yeah um that i was like man his cinemat- his cinematographer must have been really good or also like, had really good communication with him to get what <laughs> he wanted and it's like <laughs> excellent communication i it's very uh, ariana grande uh i see it i want it i get it i bought it like very like <laughs> you know he gets what he wants he did it
2: i saw this movie when i was pretty young and i remember like briefly becoming obsessed with the idea of like recon and like spying on people yeah so like i would i was hanging out in borders bookstore a lot at the time so i would pick somebody and trail them oh my god in the bookstore like
1: all the time oh my god Bethy, that's incredible did they ever notice probably no i was really good wow what did you learn I don't remember now,
2: but like it was just like a yeah, I wanna see what they're like observing, what they're like doing, uh what their book what books they're looking at, and like after they leave a section, I'll go look at where their eyeline was and be like, Oh, they were checking out this book. I don't remember any details now. I just remember being like, I am just like Rusty right now. I am I love so <laughs> slick. <laughs> I
1: love that because honestly, because I feel the same I I was watching I rewatched all eight seasons of Psych recently. Um, I was shooting a movie in Syracuse and there was a lot of downtime and very scary COVID stuff outside. So I just would go home, would go back to the little hotel room and just watch Psych, which is all observation. It's very propaganda in some ways, uh, but it was like an emotional solve because I'd already mm-hmm. watched it when I was like, younger. But he, like, it's all observations and like checking things. And I found myself. I will watch someone go by and I'll, like, see, like, an untied shoelace or something and I'll be like, that tells me this person was in a rush to get to wherever they were going. And, like, it's very fun just to, like, do the little recon or, like, to kind of, like, when you notice that you can see someone and they can't notice you like i definitely do a similar thing of like people like if i was a spy this is the information i would get and it's the same way of like watching mad men wanted me to smoke when make made me want to smoke cigarettes because i was like <laughs> i just want to be i just want to do what they're doing you know we just dangerous
2: kind of brought this up in a second ago but like this movie has such like this is a remake of the old oceans 11 with the rat pack but this movie does so much more to individuate each 11 members of the crew like, they mm. are much more their own guys than the original. Which guy are you? Tag yourself. Mm. I will say I am a Ruben, I think. You're a Ruben. I'm a Ruben. I'm, you know, a little bit back. I'm not necessarily in the middle of the con, but I have like a big picture notion of things and a m- historical context is also a forte of mine. Colin, mm. our producer, is a Livingston Dell, the-, the little <sighs> little nervous tech guy hmm Tom what are you
0: this is really hard and I wish I'd had time to think about it more but I do I do identify in some ways with Linus the the Matt Damon character yeah, yeah. there is like there is kind of like an insecure little brother quality to that character that I think is very unique for Matt Damon to play mm-hmm. because of what you think of his star type being but I I see some of myself there I can't say I'm, like, Russ or Danny. I wish I could.
1: Yeah. I got to say, I think I'm Brad Pitt. I think I gave it some thought. <laughs> and I think it was some thought because I was also maybe, like, maybe I'm a Linus. And then I, I literally, because as I have ADHD and my brain goes, Brr, I, when I was like, Addy, maybe you're a Linus. And I was like, why do you think that? And I was like, well, because, you know, maybe, like, you, um you know you don't you got to like learn to believe in yourself maybe in your parent's shadow and i was like that's not true i believe in myself i've outburned i've outshined my parent's shadow they're in mine i love them so much uh, dad if you're listening to this i love you so much i don't i don't actually believe that um but uh i think i i think i'm not a danny cuz i think i i think i wouldn't I think in a I was just trying to think like if I was had a very the things that I have a very strong skill in like performing comedy or like hosting a comedy show or like I have a black belt in karate or like if I was like amongst people if I had like a skill and I had to use my skill what's my confidence level in that skill and I think I do feel like I have rusty uh like like rust type confidence in the skills that I have however I and I do think I would get frustrated at someone who would put their own like emotional, personal shit before the the mm-hmm. the, the, the welfare of the group. And I right. think that would make me really upset because I'm like, dude, go to fucking therapy because I think I've been to therapy so much. So I think I so I actually think I'm a Russ and that's. And and I and I have only been able to say that because I've been to therapy.
0: <laughs> Addie, did you real quick question? Did you breeze over having a black belt in karate?
1: Oh, I did. Yes, I did. I'm a weapon. Do you want to talk
0: more about that? That seems do, cool. Do you have any questions?
1: Uh, what are your questions? What question? I think I just I want ask? to
0: celebrate it, but I don't know that <laughs> I have a question.
1: Yeah, I grew. I um, uh, it's so funny. It's it's very funny. It took me a while to like realize that having a black belt was like a special skill and not not and that unusual just because. M- majority of the people that were my friend growing up had black belts. Like, I, you know what I mean? Oh, everyone like, has was, a black belt in karate. You know, like, because, like, I started doing karate when I was, like, five. And then that was just, like, my sport. And I got really serious about it when I was seven, uh, where I was like, okay, no more playing around. I want to get my black belt. And then it was just, like, I was just at karate five days a week. That was all my friends. I got my black belt when I was 13 which was young, like the other people who got their belt with me were like 15, like fifteen, sixteen, 16. Um, and I was absolutely a weapon at 13. The guy was like <laughs> looking back on it, like in incredible shape in so many ways, like disciplined, like physical. Like I look at like my muscles from then. I'm like, God damn, I was just very cut 13 um, year old. <laughs> Very good with, like, with, like, weapons, too, like, 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 bow staff, like, like knives, knife work. And then I found comedy. <laughs> uh, I found comedy when I was, like, 13, 14 and then was, like, this is what I want to do for my life. Um, But I kept doing karate until uh, until I left Philly when I was 18. So, but I started teaching kids karate. So that was, like, my first job was getting paid to teach kids and, like, adults karate in Philadelphia. Um, And then when I got to college, I had to be told twice to stop putting people in chokeholds. <laughs> because that's not normal. And we would play a game called Surprise Chokehold, which would be just it's a blanket game. No matter what you're doing in life, one of my karate friends could put me in a chokehold or vice versa. And we did. And then you had to try to get out of it and uh, you know, without tapping out. And I was dating a guy my freshman year of college, who was a sweet playwright, and um, he beat me in beer pong and then tried like tickling me, which is rough housing. And so I put him in a chokehold and then he collapsed. And I was upset at him because he didn't tap out. And he was like, What? Is tapping out. I don't know, and I was like mortified. It was very. It felt. It felt horrible because I felt like a monster, and no one told me. Okay. Like it felt. So this is kind yeah. of
2: making me think that maybe you are more of like a basher or a yen because you have a, such a specialized skill that the other heisters do not have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess like maybe I just don't feel fully represented by this team of men. Mm. <laughs> um. Or no, I don't. Well, yen. I mean, maybe a bash. Okay. Okay, I could see myself as a bash. I could see myself as a bash, maybe not a yen, uh. How's your Cockney because, like, accent? Cockney, I got Cockney up the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can do British, I could do British and Cockney. Oh, I mean, I would love have. to be bash.
0: I, uh, well, I Addie, you're, out? you're in. We're, we're auditioning. Yeah,
1: that's the heist.
0: Bethy's 11. Um, nice and you have the specificity needed to join the team
1: well that's the thing it depends like if it's my idea then i'm a russ but if it's someone else's idea then i am a bash fully 100 percent. i think that's true thank you so much for helping me figure that out but yeah, i do have that specialized skill i would love to fight people the majority <laughs> of movies i've watched are action co- action movies maybe action comedy or just straight up action thriller people are confused that i don't watch more rom-coms but that's just what I grew up watching, was <laughs> action movies. That's all I want to do.
2: <laughs> we should maybe take a step back and assume... There has to be somebody who hasn't seen this movie and needs like a little bit of a explainer of what happened. Or hasn't right? watched it in a long time, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thomas, do you want to try and give a try at summarizing the film?
0: Yeah, so at the top of Ocean's Eleven, Danny Ocean, a seasoned thief is getting out of the big house. He's ready to re-enter society after getting busted uh, on a botched job. And the moment he's out, he's got a big job in mind. And we learn that his ex-wife Tess, played by Julia Roberts, has left him for a casino king. And so Danny, to sort of reassert himself, wants to get together all of his best guys to rob three casinos owned and operated by this dude. Um... And but that that's... is not
1: what he tells his friends. He tells his friends that he they want to make $150 million because it's a casino and a fight night. And most notably, his friend Russ, or Rusty, um, he does not tell Rusty that his ex-wife Tess is involved at all. He's like, What? I'm just trying to rob this guy, this bad guy, right? And then on and I checked it, it's at minute forty five is when Rusty is when Rusty is when Russ sees Tess. So it's really halfway through the movie that then the reveal is, uh oh, mm-hmm. the emotional. at yeah, all.
2: Danny um, assembles a team.
1: He's we've got the twins or the the boys, two Jethros. Well, I mean, I, oh yeah, I was gonna say, do you want to read out the things? Because I did. Oh yeah, it was cool we're gonna to, we're gonna like, like, talk pause. about the, that in a second. So he assembles a oh, team. Fine. We got a a demolitions expert,
2: a master hacker, some car boys. Uh, an old con man who's the best in the biz, a uh, pickpocket, and am I forgetting anybody? The bankroller. That's it. That's all yeah. the guys. Oh, and, and the grease man, a, a Chinese acrobat who is the jumpiest little guy to ever jump. And together yeah. they, with the rest of the movie, is seeing how their plan does and does not go according to plan.
1: Yeah. Which also and I would say, I mean, I have not watched the original that we have referenced, which is and Tom for, for listeners at home, Tom just gave a big old thumbs down <laughs> uh in the Google Hang chat. He just gave a big old stinky thumb down. Um but I do feel like uh this is a movie that's so that has been parodied so many times or like thematically parodied, um, in like literally any like Brooklyn nine nine episode when they do their Halloween mm-hmm. episodes or any episode or any episode or movie that that's like and now here's how the heist is going to go down and then it kind of like shows what the plan might be and it's like you always i would say like the formula for a heist movie which is what ocean's 11 does perfectly is like they say this is how the plan is going to go and they like explain the plan and they show like the recon leading up to it and then the plan does not go according to plan and they have to like you know their problems arise and then they have to like adjust the plan as it goes, which is why Ocean's Eight was bad. <laughs> so something that works really
2: Among many, other Among many other reasons. Sorry,
0: Bethy, back to you. We'll sorry, get to so Ocean's Eight in due time. Uh,
2: something that, that this movie does really well is in the plan exposition scene, they don't tell the plan at all. What they actually do is just lay out the stakes of how hard this is going to be. They never really explain how they're going to do it. They're just like, this is what, this is why we can't do this. This is why it's so hard. This is why it'll never work. And then, and then they're just like, all right, cool, let's get to it. And then like the next 20 minutes is like kind of the, uh, like preparation is like, it's the monologue of like what Clooney is telling them they're going to have to do, intercut with them doing it, but you never get the plan. It's yeah. not until the very oh, right. end that you actually find out what the full plan was. And it's which so is,
1: good. Which is tropey in itself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which is like, they do that as well. As like, I think the audience is like, at that point, the audience is like, okay, I'm in on this. Okay, cool. How are we going to do it? Okay, I see. And then there'll be a point of wait, what happens next? It's like, it was all, all part of the plan.
0: Yeah, I think I think Ocean's. I think Soderbergh invented kind of the cadence of the setup and the reveals with this movie. Like, obviously, it's rooted in like mm-hmm. yeah. existing any any number of heist movies, but like he he created uh, some interesting new language that, like you said, Addie has been echoed so many times in so mm-hmm. many movies but I, I I think about there's a moment with Saul that's so funny uh, in, in the first conversation at the house where Danny finishes doing his version of explaining the plan which is super minimal it's just giving you kind of the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. um, and Saul raises his hand and he's like okay so if we get into the casino and you know, through the vents that we can't traverse, and into the vault that we can't possibly enter, we're just supposed to walk out with a mm-hmm. hundred and fifty million dollars.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's
0: a beat, and Danny has a half-hearted like, "Well, yeah."
2: Yeah. And then Saul
0: <laughs> goes, "Okay," and okay. crosses his arms. And that's that's like the movie. Like on on kind of a meta level, it's just sort of like. They know you're going to go along with it because the filmmaking is so energetic and the characters are so fun that, like, yeah. the more minute details don't really matter.
1: It's it's also – it's a fun movie to watch. I've been thinking a lot reason, uh, recently about how not a lot of – how not every single person watches movies. Like, I've had, like, conversations with people because – and I think, like, in L.A. Espe- especially, all of my friends here – Not only watch movies, but, like, love to watch and talk and discuss and, like, you watch a movie and then you also go and you watch YouTube videos that break down sequences. Like, you watch, like, stunt people react to and (laughs) editors react to and, like, you really get into and, and we're also writing at the same time. So we're watching movies and we're like, how did they get all that information out in the first 12 pages? Oh, my God. And I've been thinking a lot about people who don't do this. And, like, I had a friend who said that, like, he was at a dinner and a woman was like, who's Adam Driver? And it's like, when you say who's Adam Driver, it's like, oh, we just have nothing in common. Like, that's that's (laughs) what my friend was saying. I'm just just being like, if you don't know, if you don't even just know who this person is, we might not have a lot of overlap. I think this is a fun movie for anybody to watch. But I think it's specifically a really fun movie for people who love movies and who write movies to watch because they – because moments like that of being like, so we're just going to walk out? It's like, yeah. And it's like, we are like, oh, that's awesome. Because we've also seen other movies where that turns into a longer conversation or – and it's like, no, no, just get to the thing. Like, just keep the movie moving. And even when uh, Danny and Russ are like, I wonder what Saul's going to – or wonder what Ruben's going to think about it, right? It's him. Yeah. And then it's just – it's it's like the – and then it's an, a pre-lap of him being like you guys are fucking nuts and it just like it answers <laughs> it immediately um and there's no like driving to his house and ringing the doorbell it's just like we have so many things to get through and so many people to see and I have to show them so accurately that it's just so exciting to – as people who, like, w- watch and make and create atmospheres for movie and television, I think it's really an interesting movie and exciting in that way. <sighs> I landed the plane. Thank you so much. <laughs> no,
0: that's great. And that speaks to, I think, the point that I was inelegantly trying to make at the beginning, which is that, like, I loved this movie as a child when I didn't understand, I think, a lot of the machinations of what's happening. And now yeah. I love it as a – a larger child who has watched a yeah. lot more movies and 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 who is involved in making them and i It it weirdly kind of works for everyone. It's Mm -hmm. like a movie that works purely at a surface level as kind of like a perfect commercial construction. But like, if you're willing to dig in deep, like there's just so much there. It's clearly like a a love letter from a filmmaker.
2: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of those surface pleasures. Um, Specifically- The guys are hot! The guys (laughs) are hot. (laughs) The clothes are cool. Uh, The colors are very big. But I want to talk about the music.
1: Oh, baby.
2: This is like the second um, David Holmes- soderberg collab and it's using like a lot of his music from um the the one record that he did with a guy from lcd sound system or like he started with them and then he like kind of went away um i'm looking
1: up david holmes
0: Wait, did James Murphy make music with David Holmes?
2: Yeah. um, If you read... It's in Meet Me in the Bathroom. They were like friends, and then David Holmes kind of like got a record deal and then fucked off back to England, and it, it's uh, like really bad blood now. But they, he oh, started shit! Making, I do
0: remember this. So like
2: some of the music in Ocean's Eleven is on the album that he started making with... Um, I already forgot his name.
0: Mr. James Murphy. James
2: yeah. Sound System.
1: <laughs> Maybe I'm getting those wrong, but I'm looking at, I mean, there's also a lot of, uh, he's part of the band Unloved, Mm -hmm. whose music has been used extensively in the television series Killing Eve, and Holmes is the composer, so that's also very cool.
2: Yeah. It uses these amazing classic Vegas tropes of, like, Elvis, obviously, but then the first um, scene, I think the beginning of the actual heist night, um, the song that they cut to is Blues in the Night by Quincy Jones, and he Hmm. has, like, multiple records that were recorded in, like, the Tropicana or in the Flamingo. Like, he was, like, a showroom guy for such a long time. And it uses, like, Caravan, which is, like, this Exotica song. So, like, a lot of the music is, like, bringing a lot of old Vegas flavor to it. And that's something, as I've gotten older, I really appreciate about this movie, is that it is, like, yeah, as as a little kid, I'm just like, this is cool. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. But then, as I've learned more and more about... Las Vegas and about the history of crime
1: specifically in Las Vegas. Oh, this... which is what? Is that too long of a tangent? But what is the his what are you going to get about into Vegas it. and the history? Okay, okay that is, like, I it, love like it really Fantastic. perfectly
2: um this movie is about old Vegas guys taking something back from New Vegas. So like mm. Reuben is an old like I this is the first time I realized it watching it Reuben is an old Jewish mafia guy. Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't realize he's Jewish mafia until this viewing. I'm like, oh, fuck, of course he is. That's how he's running a <laughs> casino. <laughs> so it's yeah. about mob Vegas guys stealing from Corpo Vegas guys. This is about, like, uh,
1: fucking over Steve Wynn. Which is beautiful. Which I will say, and we we don't have to get so into Oceans 8, but I do think that that is actually my biggest, it is my biggest problem with Oceans 8, which if you guys do not know, Oceans 8 was like the most recent Oceans movie with Sandra Bullock. Thomas is giving two big old honking and stinking and thumbs down about it. The thing that I really don't like the most is that they're stealing diamonds from a mu- from a the from a museum, from the Met. They're stealing like history like artifacts like their whole thing is like stealing the swarovski uh diamond and and they're, and 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 not only are they and then the twist what i don't like is their twist the twi- the big twist is oh you thought we were only stealing one necklace we're actually stealing a bunch of them and it just was this thing where i'm like i don't I think you guys are bad people stealing from maybe good people or not like or or they didn't like they didn't make the they didn't make the museum seem bad they didn't make the diamonds seem bad and it was like oh it's just a bunch of ladies stealing diamonds yeah it's
2: very easy to make diamonds and the owners of diamonds
1: evil like it is actually a really bad it's easy to like talk about like what did the Swarovski family do was there anything they did like is it symbolic or in some way but it was just kind of like to say fuck you to say fuck you versus this is like bad people stealing from other bad people and it kind of just feels like hey it's like don't hate the player hate the game like old casino new casino it's all casino baby and like what are casinos casinos also very much take advantage of people who have gambling addictions like they're not like we don't really have sympathy for people who make money off of people losing money and that like was gone in oceans 8 completely
0: it, it it lacks that personal quality that I think really invests you in yeah. in the heist. I also think, yeah. like, something we've been talking about that Ocean's Eleven does well that seems obvious but is very hard is to make each member of the ensemble incredibly well-defined, someone who you can talk about. The ensemble in Ocean's Eight, they kind of blur together. They don't have, like, distinguishing characteristics. Which sucks because they have incredible
1: actresses.
0: They're all amazing, but like ironically have no chemistry together, mm-hmm. are not having fun making the movie, are mm-hmm. not really given anything interesting to do. Like it was enough for the studio to be like, we will reboot this with women as a I don't know, like a a, a half gesture. And and the movie itself is just not good at all.
1: Yeah. It's really disappointing. Um okay, but Bethy, Vegas, crime. What else is going on? <laughs> <laughs> um as far as
2: in the movie the how it connects to the crime it really is just the mafia thing but then also like the the specific casinos that are being like uh robbed the Mirage the Bellagio and the MGM Grand MGM. yeah those used to be Steve Wynn's casinos Steve Wynn is like Almost a carbon copy of Trump. Like, he was a casino magnate, big wig at the Republican Party, but he actually was forced to resign for his sexual misconduct allegations. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. he got ousted from his own corporation and from the Republican Party for, for sexual misconduct stuff. Back on. But Terry Benedict is, like, kind of playing, like, a him guy. But it's mm-hmm. so funny because Steve Wynn is, like, the anti-Terry Benedict. He would never... Steve Wynn would never be the guy to like take care of every problem personally. Steve Wynn is also kind of a big fucking dork. Mm-hmm. Um, he, <laughs> there's this special that aired on, I think, NBC, like, when Treasure Island, the casino came out, like mm-hmm. that was one of Steve Wynn's casinos, and he insisted that he would cameo in this TV special about like there's a real pirate's lair in Treasure Island, and Blackbeard oh is really there, and oh I, God. Steve Wynn, no Blackbeard,
1: and, and I, like, Steve Wynn, yeah, that's a really like, fucking goober. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, incredible. So that's that's something that I appreciate, like you know we on this podcast we did swingers and that's like a downtown vegas movie and this is a strip movie and like you really can tell the difference between those mm. two places by how they do vegas like what the yeah. energy is
1: yeah and i also like i mean vegas is also a great place i mean i mean vegas in itself like thematically is just like you know of such a gilded gold type place of being like everything looks very glitz and glam and And, you know, but it is it is just essentially a mirage in the desert of what it actually is. And like not everything and, and, you know, very fake gold, gilded gold. It looks like gold, but it's not. And then in the um, I mean, literally in there. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald is that the Ella? Is it the mm-hmm. Ella Fitzgerald? Yeah, the Ella Fitzgerald is the loop is the loop of the robbery, and it's like that's not what it looks, you know, of like literally them being like check the cameras, check the cameras again, and uh, it's just it's just a magic trick. And then also how great is like so much of heist is making it look like magic, and what is Vegas also known for? Casinos and magic. Sorry, my closet is under steps, like the steps in my apartment building. So sometimes it's great for recording, and sometimes it's bad.
0: Uh, it kind of sounds like a. Ghost? Is it not a ghost? <laughs> Is it a neighbor?
1: I just didn't know if you guys were ready for me to say that I have ghosts in my house, but I am. We're a ghost so
0: friendly. friendly pod. Ghost friendly
1: pod. you did Ghostbusters.
2: Oh, uh, we should mm-hmm. talk about the the made up con names that <laughs> Soderbergh and yes. Ted Griffiths made up. So he says, Brad Pitt says near the beginning of the movie. Off the top of my head, I'd say you're looking at a Boskey, a Jim Brown, a Miss Daisy, two Jethroes, <laughs> and a Leon Spinks, not to mention the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever. Yeah. And Soderbergh explained that he actually did know what all of those mean. Like, he helped he, – he and Ted Griffiths, like, made them up together.
1: Yeah. I mean, because they have such symbolism behind them.
2: Yeah. Should we – how do we want to unpack them?
1: I mean, I literally have this, like, article on it. So, like – okay, so the Boskey the Boski is, uh, so it is, is Saul, who's playing Lyman Zurga. And so he, and so Lyman Zurga, he's the whale who asks to put his jewels in the casino vault. So he's the one who's getting into the vault. Um, and his jewels are actually dynamite. Um, and this is a reference to Ivan Bosky, a big time trader on Wall Street who got caught committing securities fraud. The con here is about a wealthy roller who has insider information. So that's cool. That's a fun, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the next one, a Jim Brown, named after the famous American football player Jim Brown, who is widely regarded as one of the greatest football players ever. The fight between the characters is called a Jim Brown in a reference to the confrontations in football, and that's the fight between Frank uh, Cadden and Linus, which I did make a note. I was like, not only are these actors such great actors, but the characters that they play are are also great actors. Because mm-hmm. that scene with Frank and Linus, where he's like, you're being racist. Like, a black man can't. And, and I was like, what? No, sir, I am not. Like, they, they they had to sell this fake fight. And that was the Jim Brown. Because that's a con- a football confrontation.
2: I heard that it was also just because he played, like, a lot of tough guys in movies. It wasn't just, like, the football of it. And then mm-hmm. did Jim Brown... Was he in one of those movies where a white guy and a black guy are handcuffed to each other and have to learn about tolerance?
1: Oh, that's even... Fun. I mean, I that's could even be wrong better, about that if that's crazy.
2: Not
0: to my knowledge, cut but that. maybe <laughs> nah.
1: the fight between the characters called Jim Brown in reference to the confrontations in football. I think that's a stretch. I think it that one's a stretch, but the next one, Miss Daisy, makes sense because driving Miss Daisy is a movie about a woman who gets chauffeured around town and the team uses a SWAT van, which is remote controlled and therefore being driven by not them. And that's their getaway vehicle, is the Miss Daisy. So that's the remote controlled car. That's just sweet. That's called Miss Daisy, <laughs> and then the two Jethros are given to the Malloy brothers, Turk and Virgil, and that's a reference to Beverly Hillbillies, uh, who have the character of the same name. And they're slightly redneck Malloy um, Malloy brothers who are hired to look after Miss Daisy, the van, um, and also throughout. And two Jethros because they come in tandem. They are asked on a variety of tasks. The balloons, which I love. I love the balloon um, scene. And uh, and the remote control drag car they're playing at the beginning is a clue to the ploy later at the end of the movie. The balloons is so good. The balloons is like um, that's the thing where I'm like, wow, teamwork really makes a dream work. And like and also again, such good actors. They just have to convincingly. What fun. Okay, I would want to be one of those characters. So actually maybe I'm one of the brothers. Maybe I'm one of the bro- maybe my character my Ocean's 11 character is one of the brothers and then one of my best friends is the other person too or I play both.
0: <laughs> you can replace Casey Affleck. Yeah,
1: he's out. He's hot. I'll do it. What a what a what a incredible a, 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 a compliment.
0: <laughs> Their fight though when his brother calls him balloon boy. <laughs> it's just boy. like burned into my brain from when I was a kid.
2: Who mm-hmm. you calling a friend jackass is something that also gets stuck <laughs> in my head constantly. Uh-huh. Um I think it, They're kind of surprisingly – there's such utility players within the heist because they do – as Jethro's, it's not just that they're, like, the car guys. They're also, like, underestimated because they give off hayseed vibes. So, like, nobody knows that they're conning people because they seem too dumb to even know where they are like when they're in con mode.
1: Yeah, I will say the one thing that I do like about Ocean's 8, it's the the first it's the it's the scene, it's the only scene I love, but I love it so much. That's the only redeeming quality is when Sandra Bullock in the beginning of the movie gets to steal all that makeup by pretending like she's returning it. And my oh, friend yeah. my friend John Braylock, he was like that's being a white woman using your white woman this mm-hmm. as a superpower of being like, of like, I'm going to call the manager vibes. Oh my God, please no, no white lady, please don't. And then she just gets to steal stuff. Um, And I think these two brothers, they get to, by being two good looking, clean white men who also look kind of dumb, they get a lot of, like, (laughs) empathy and sympathy of, like, come on, those two nice guys can't be up to anything bad. They're just, you know, not too smart up there. Like, just so they just, they're not suspicious at all. And they're not going to be roughly put out of the casino for causing a ruckus because a lot of the people in the casinos are clean, nice-looking white guys who are dumb. And so, like, they... That's the bread and butter of the casino industry, baby. That's what it is. So it's like their utility is, um, you know, kind of like almost pawns on a chessboard, where it's like, but there's a lot of them and you can't do shit in chess if all of your, if all your pawns are gone, like your frontline defense, you know, and the multiple of them. So it's really, yeah, they're
0: great. And and the genius of that pairing is you can't just have one good looking kind of unassuming dumb guy. You have to have the brothers who have the like really juvenile competition that continues to exist between them only mm-hmm. because they're kind of dumb and their development mm-hmm. is arrested. Because mm-hmm. they mutually motivate each other to do more and to do better than mm-hmm. they would ever do on their own.
1: And so it's also very believable. And also yeah. I think harder to remember them. Because right. they kind of both look alike, so it's like, oh, there were these two guys. I don't know, one was you're paying attention hair, to
2: their was... vibes more than who they are. Like there are these yeah. two guys who are yelling at each other. He kept calling him Balloon Boy. That was fucked up. <laughs>
1: yeah, but no one remembers what they look like yeah. because then they because then they also play bell waiters and then they all they play waiters and they also play security people. Like mm-hmm. they they play they have so many costume changes in the same location and no one is like, aren't you the same guy that was here yesterday? No one remembers. They all look the same. Which is incredible.
2: I want to get back to the the terms, Leon but before we do that, uh, before Scott Conn and Casey Affleck were the twins. Uh, or I keep calling them twins if they're just brothers. Before yeah, the the brothers, uh, the Jeff Throses. Luke and Owen Wilson were considered, but they had to do Royal Tenenbaums instead. And then oof. Soderbergh was like, "What wow. about Joel and Ethan Cohen?" Whoa! <laughs> he wanted to cast. That the would Cohen be builders.
0: incredible. All three versions of this are great. Like even though Casey Affleck, bad dude, this is good casting. But like, yeah. oof.
1: Oh, I always forget that he's bad guy, and I called him hot. Can we cut that?
2: <laughs>
0: oh, I thought you meant it
1: was hot that you were gonna get to replace him. Oh yeah, like oh, what a hot opportunity it. for the world. Well then, oh then let's keep it then. If that's how it came off. Look, there are so many white guys who've done so many bad. I literally said the same thing about Marky Mark. When I was watching a trailer and 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 I, and I was like Man, isn't he so fun? And someone was like, "Yeah, except for the hate crimes." And I was like, "God damn, it, that's right." Like I just keep forgetting. It's, there's so many. <laughs> Cuz there's just so many and they all kind of look the same. I'm like, "Okay, I just I don't support any. Sorry,
0: Tom." <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine.
1: Leon Spinks. Actually, I mean, you can keep all of that. I can be fallible. Um, okay. I'm, I have contained multitudes. Uh, Leon Spinks. Okay, so the Leon Spinks is a reference to the boxing match where Leon Spinks beat Muhammad Ali, and that was an upset which nobody expected. So that is mirrored with a boxing match in the movie. Um, uh, however, uh, the unexpected occurrence is obviously the power going out, um, but that creates the chaos that's necessary for the whole shebang to go off. And so that is fun that it's the Leon Spinks. It also is crazy. It's really specific, and so for. It is one of these movie things where it's like there's no way that Russ that these are like easy coined terms because they're no. so specific. <laughs> so it's it's so screenwritten and like such an Easter egg for you to stop and do this because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Because Ella Fitzgerald, a lady who could sing?
2: Yeah, so the so the Ella Fitzgerald is is specifically the uh, pre taping of robbery and putting it on the closed circuit TV instead of what's actually going on because of the old Ella Fitzgerald Memorex commercial where it's like Mm -hmm. she's singing but it's actually oh wait no we're actually just playing a cassette tape and the slogan is it real or is it Memorex was about that when I was younger I thought the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever was uh Saul faking the heart attack because I thought it was just like a bravura performance (laughs) I was like, yeah, you know, just like really giving it. <laughs> I thought that's what it meant.
1: I thought Ella Fitzgerald was freaking Julia Roberts. I was like, oh, she's the lady that everyone that is that everyone's gonna have their eyes on or attention drawn to. Uh so no one's gonna notice. uh the audience members. I was like, what's it up with Ella Fitzgerald? Like, I really was like, oh, it's. I guess it's a lady. <laughs> like, cause I didn't. <laughs> I guess the lady will be played by a lady. <laughs> that's the thing we're talking about. Of like this movie.
2: If you're watching it like uncritically, you just sort of like, "Oh, I get I understand the shape of the words that are coming out. I don't entirely understand their meaning, but I don't know if I have to to just have a good time." And we we talked about that in the context of watching it as a kid, Thomas, you were saying mm-hmm. that. But right. as an adult, you can just really like, "I don't know what this means and I don't know if it matters to the vibe, to just vibing to this film." But once you do unpack it, it, it does get deeper and well, weirder. <laughs>
1: Have you seen Owen Wilson crazier than a road lizard? No. Owen Owen Wilson, I'm going Owen Wilson, appa- you can look up Owen Wilson crazier than a road lizard and he has found a way to put the term crazier than a road lizard into almost every movie he's done. There's like a smash <laughs> cut, where he's like, "That's crazier than a road lizard." No idea what it means. Don't know, I mean, I guess road lizards are crazy, but like he has found a way to put them in a very underreported news it's only it was like one vulture article i think about crazier than a road li- lizard and Bethy's like and i'm gonna look it up right now um, Bethy is
0: writing road lizard road, revisited
1: road lizard revisited <laughs> um uh, but it feels like a thing where it's like uh, owen wilson says it and you don't even bat an eye because you're like yeah that makes sense coming out of your mouth so i think like brad pitt his character being just so confident that he could say anything and i'd be like mm-hmm, that is the job and so he's like, we're going to need two elephants, Gerald, one ham and cheese pastrami, three goats on rye, <laughs> and you better believe we're taking them all to Mars. And I go, mm-hmm, that's good. Can you put that in writing really quick, though, <laughs> in layman's terms? But, like, you know, but you're like, oh, great. If he, th- he knows it's what like, he's well, talking Well, you about. seem
2: confident about it, so I trust you. This is going to work out fine. Yeah, I'm realizing you just tell now me where to go, when, and I'll go? that when I was listing the guys in the team, I forgot to mention Bernie Mac as the insider Like, on the ground floor, Frank Catton. Oh, Frank Catton.
0: Rest in peace. Rest in peace. So, so incredible. And especially in this movie.
2: And, you know, he's so funny in this movie. He's bringing, like, a a much, like, smaller performance than, like, the Bernie Mac persona that you're used to. Like, he's toning Mm -hmm. it down so that these movie stars can do, like, their muted performance. He's like, well, I'm going to be like, you know, 70% of what a full Bernie Mac could be right now. He's not going, like, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. But the scene where he, like, sh- gets the the price down on the vans that they're the going to use. The handshake.
0: Oh, it's so good. The
2: handshake is incredible.
1: <laughs> well, because he gets to be intense and Bernie Mac in other ways, in mm-hmm. just, like, how to hold the hand. And then we mentioned him in the Jim Brown the yeah. Jim Brown thing, but he... um. I remember watching that the van this time around being like, did I not remember this from last time? Like, this is just getting the price down, and that's it. (laughs) Like, to get the van. But, like, could have just probably bought the van for full price. You got a lot of funding, you know? Sure. But, you know, you got to have fun. I like that they the the boys are always
2: finding like little cons within the con to keep themselves from getting bored from like the main task. Yeah. Like we're gonna we're gonna prank Matt Damon into thinking that that Clooney is out. That's just for us. Me that's just that's just for me and Brad to have like a little goof at Matt's expense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can I mention a detail I noticed this time that I've never yeah. noticed before watching Oceans Eleven. So it's- I've seen this movie at least 20 times because it was one of the first DVDs I owned. I had like the little cardboard snap case and just like wore Mm -hmm. it to shit. But arguably the most iconic moment in this movie is post-heist when they're all lined up, just sort of starry-eyed as Claire DeLune plays. They're looking at the fountain. You've got these like really majestic shots of Las Vegas. And it's like, these guys have done it. It feels really magical, like the culmination of this team up. I had never, ever, ever noticed, and maybe I'm stupid, but when they first go to Reuben's house and everyone is there, Claire Lune is playing very faintly as diegetic music. How would we have noticed sitting.
1: that? Oh no, I you're not I'm stupid at all. Of... Great catch. Yeah. <clears throat> wow.
0: But when I was watching it this time, I'm like, oh, this is this is such a magical, almost subliminal detail where it's like the group is finally together like this is the magical ensemble like this is what it takes to accomplish this absurd task Mm -hmm. and so it's echoed later when it swells and, and booms and that's like the big finale of the movie but like this has so many little details like that that you don't need for the movie to work just on its kind of like fun surface level but that make it really rewarding when you dig back in.
2: Oh, every every part of the Clay Lune sequence is incredible. Like it starts with that last shot on Terry Benedict, just, like so angry as the doors close on him. It's like a perfect goodbye to his character. He seems like he's going into like the bowels of hell to wreak his vengeance, but he's just in an elevator. But like, you know, we have the boys reflecting in front of the thing, but then you also have Julia Roberts like the, the acting playing on her face as she starts out mad and then goes oh wait no i still love my husband and i'm excited about realizing that i still have compassion for him and her they time it so that when the piece picks up is also when she starts like running again mm-hmm. so it ha- it's like really beautifully choreographed in the cutting
1: for that i think um it reminds me of this thing I was talking to a friend about because we love to talk about movies and we were just talking about like philosophizing about directing and how like directing is a very certain type of manipulation or like intention um in a way that, like a manipulation in like the most positive best use of the word of like of like the way that you can manipulate clay to be a sculpture you know and of being like we are putty and the director is about to manipulate us into a feeling of emotion or sense of understanding or some kind of allegory that they want us to understand
3: Hey there, Movie Bar listeners. Producer Colin here. Right about now, we started getting some electronic interference that made the audio sound like this for about two minutes. It was right as Addie was getting to some really insightful points, so I've typed out most of what she said as best as I could manage, and I will read it to you now. I've been trying to watch things recently with the mindset that every single thing is intentional. And if I endow the writers and the directors and the grips and the art department and whatever, with the assumption that they are the smartest people ever, and I'm not going to do this exercise with Oceans 8 because it's too late, they've burned me. But if I'm watching anything, even if I think it's bad, I assume it's exactly what they wanted. Uh, what's the intention then? And then there's a short chunk that I just couldn't make out. Uh, but then it continues. We want some closure. How can we manipulate the scene to further drive home the fact that everyone is back together again, this time bigger and stronger than before? We can play the song and then bring it back bigger and stronger. And there's all this subliminal and subconscious stuff t- to deliver the points of the movie. I think the purpose of movies and storytelling is that it helps you, uh, it lets the director take you by the hand and lead you along this journey, this story, that hopefully will help you understand parts of your life that are very unexplainable. At the end of Infinity Wars, half the people just fucking die. And everybody left that movie theater going, that sucked. That I hated that ending. You know, people were really upset. But how many people are watching Marvel movies who have had a loved one unexpectedly die? And now they can use this movie, this movie that's advertised to kids and family to be like, how are you doing since your dad passed? And it's like, well, you know what it feels like? It feels like the end of Infinity Wars when Spider-Man is just like gone and it feels unfair. And it's like, oh, wow. Now we're using Infinity Wars to talk about grief. And that feeling, you can very easily be like, man, everyone's back together again. It feels like the end of is Eleven. You know, when they're all there, they're all back and Claire de Lune's playing. That's how I feel right now. Okay, I'll throw it back to Addy for the rest of the episode. Thanks for listening.
1: That's how I feel right now. Because, like, what you're saying is, like, something so much more. And, like, that's the beauty of movies. And that is my TED Talk. Um, But I just love – I think think movies and TV and stories are fucking awesome. And they are so important to society. (laughs) Addie, you
0: you articulated something that I think about and talk about a lot and is maybe, like, the most important tenet of the way that I approach movies, which is Mm -hmm. a lot of times I feel like movies are served poorly by the discourse when people assume that they're smarter than what they're watching – Mm -hmm. And sometimes you are smarter than what you're watching. Like sometimes there are fundamental creative failings that make a thing less good than it could be, not good at all, any variation of that. But I think that to approach Mm -hmm. something, assuming that the intention is there, that this is the perfect execution of what they set out to create, um, and then to see what you can glean from that experience is like... That should always be, like, your first pass at something. And then from there, yeah. maybe you can say, like, oh, no, any any version of what they might have been trying to do was not accomplished by what I've seen. Like, then you can be, like, kind of a dick about it. But I, I like to yeah. give, like, to extend grace to something as I'm watching it.
1: Well, not to be, like, not, I mean, not to be, not to, like, bring up Trump and COVID. But, like, there was a way of looking at how he handled COVID of being, like, well, if he, if his objective was to keep the rich rich. And to make the poor poorer, he fucking crushed it. Like, if his objective (laughs) was just to keep it... He did a great job. Everyone's like, he did such a bad job. Well, maybe in your mind, but if... But in his mind, his objective, he crushed it, you know, it just wasn't in line. And so it's like, so I think that, and then we get mad because he's saying I'm doing the best, you know, at this and we're like, no, you're a liar. And so I think with Ocean's 8 of being like, if it's like, oh, it's empowering. It's about women. If they were like, Ocean's 8 is supposed to make you mad. Like if they were like, (laughs) this is, you know, if they didn't say, and I'm not going to talk about this movie anymore. However, if like, if it's when it comes out of being like, this movie should be uplifting and it should be a female empowerment, whatever. And you're like, no, wrong. It made us all feel this way. But if that was the intention, then you I think it. that's <laughs> that's kind of also part of,
2: like, why I can't say I didn't like Ocean's 12, but why I didn't want to watch Ocean's 12 is, like, mm-hmm. it seemed like when I was watching, there's a scene where they're talking about, like, their their plan to go to Amsterdam and take some gigs to, like, recoup this money. The scene itself is like, the camera is very jerk, is like all over the place, like following who's talking. Um, They're overlapping each other, talking. Danny and and Russ do not have control of the room. Everybody's sort of in revolt. It is the opposite of the exposition scene that we were just talking about in Ocean's Eleven, and Mm. it's very intentionally done that way, to sort of be like, this isn't going to be the same movie. We're going to put them in a different situation. Um, This is about how they act on the fly, as opposed to a beautifully crafted puzzle box for you to behold yeah. its mastery. And I was like, cool. That is a cool idea for a movie, but it's not the movie that I want to watch right now at like 10 PM totally. on a day that I'm stressed out about COVID. <laughs> so it's like, I mm-hmm. get the point, but it's just like, that's, it's not serving the, it's not bad, it just has a different goal than what I was hoping for.
1: I would further bring this conversation into a philosophical territory of how, like, um, I've been really obsessed with David Shrigley, and, like, listening to his interviews, which are very far and few between, and uh, and think that he has to say, and, and I really liked how, you know, I like when artists, because movie making, it's art, entertainment, it's art, when you make a movie, like, of course, this is a gorgeous film, it's art, how many artists are you know, artists, poets are like, um, so what is this poem about? What's this painting about? And it's like, it's whatever it makes you feel. And it's like that. And like, that is, that's like the, almost the point of, of like, Hey, I made this thing and now it's out of my control. I directed it. I wrote it. We color graded it. And once it's edited and it's done, there's actually nothing. Now it's yours. Now you're going to watch it and have your own experience and like, And it's up to you whether you want to watch Ocean's 12 at 10 p.m. (laughs) or at 2 p.m. That's up to you. I can't, I have literally no control. I'm going to control everything else about it, but you can pause it. You can watch it with multiple people. It's yours. And therefore, how you watch it. Because there are a lot of movies where, what was one? uh, Watching a movie in theater on a big screen, big speakers? Versus watching it on my fucking little shitty laptop, I'll watch any bad movie in a movie theater and be like, "That was awesome!" Because I'm like, "Oh, this it sounded great." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there's also some great movies that feel that feel great for that too. But that, but we're having a different experience, and it's like we watch the same movie, but we consumed it in a different way. If I'm watching a movie with a bunch of friends, like even just watching, um, uh, oh my God, In the Heights. I watched In the Heights in the movie theater with a bunch of friends. I wish I had seen it with a lot more musical theater Mm -hmm. friends, because I think we would have really been dancing and singing a lot more. But, like, to see it in a theater, it just looked beautiful and great, and I was just so happy with it. And... I was and other people had different criticisms or whatever and I was like fuck that I saw it on a big screen with big speakers it was amazing and I think I'm like I like to it, that's how I want to consume movies and consume art is like from that entertainment perspective um unless I'm doing a podcast about it and I have to be smart <laughs> afterwards
2: <laughs>
0: doing a great job <laughs> I Thank saw you. It
2: in Thank the heights lead. in a theater that was under
1: air conditioned. so it really sold the heat wave mm. aspect of the film <laughs> whoa interesting i think the new thing for movies i was thinking about this because i went to see spider-man the new spider-man last night and i bought the tickets for all the friends and i thought we were in the back row we were in the front row <laughs> we were in the front row front row imax and it was crazy bad To but but good i mean still a good movie but like an insane angle And I think the future of movie theaters, I think there will still be theaters, but I think you go and you all, everyone will put on their own virtual reality headset. And so, like, there is no bad seat, but you still get to hear everybody else laughing. So, like, you put on the, this, so the speakers are still there and you can still hear people laughing and stuff, but you're watching it in your eyes or whatever i think that's going to be the future of of movies and stuff i'm saying it now for
0: any industry insiders listening addy has just forecast the future of film distribution and exhibition um that's right get in line
1: because it's important because I cause I loved, I had so much more fun because there's two end credits scenes in Spider-Man, and it was so fun for the movie to be over and the credits rolling, but everyone's still kind of sitting in the seats. And then you could, like, turn around, and I was like, we were talking to other fans. Someone was like, wasn't that great? Oh, it was awesome. And, like, to see people who didn't know each other, and some people had already left, so the people who were staying were the ones who really were excited about the movie. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is what I don't get when I watch it alone or if I watch it with four of my friends who I already know know and we can like scrub through the credits there's like this waiting time and like that's a really fun social thing what I can care to lose is the front row experience we don't have to do that my neck hurts I'm in so much pain today it hurts
0: <laughs> one thing that I want to mention before we're done is just to contextualize this in Steven Soderbergh's career which like I think mm. this movie is amazing unto itself but the idea that this is a person coming off of the limey out-of-sight, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic. Aaron Brockovich and Traffic were both nominated for Oscars the year before Ocean's Eleven came out. Like, that is a god run. What an insane insane person. And if you look at his filmography, it's like he makes big commercial movies like this, but then he makes things like Schizopolis and Bubble and his, like, weird experimental, like, shot on iPhone things. But it's like alternating them with these gigantic movies like the way he modulates as a filmmaker from this really sort of like intimate puzzle box kind of like arty Fair for himself and then these big commercial movies that work on those terms I don't know I am in awe of him but this movie is like the commercial peak for Steven Soderbergh
1: oh I mean yeah it's also franchise Aaron Brockovich didn't turn into a franchise could be fun and, if it did you, you know, know.
0: We needed Aaron Brockovich too, goddammit.
1: Could've been fun. Yeah, that's right. We needed yeah, Aaron Brocko, too. That's what I want.
0: <laughs> Brokovich is twelve. Too hot to Brock.
2: <laughs> my last thing before we we sign off is looking again at that idea of like everybody is, is choose making very definitive choices at the top of their craft or whatever is uh the Brad Pitt eating of it all. <laughs>
0: yeah. oh my um gosh. he
2: you know, he said that he was thinking of it like Brad Pitt looks cool eating, and I think he maybe just wanted to look cool eating, but he said in interviews that he his thought was that these guys are, like, always on the go, so he never... He thinks that Rusty is a guy who never gets to sit down for a meal, so he's just snacking all the time.
1: I love that. I love that, That's too. That's so cool. That's fun. And, like, honestly, like, stuff like that is... I really... I mean, it, it is it's not my goal dream job goal to only act in other people's things like i very much uh want to act in the things that i also write and that i am in creative control over but there's something very fun when being cast in a role to be like, cool. Um, thank you so much. This is like what I thought of the character. And I think this is how this person would act. And like, it's such a fun gift to give to the movie, even in this, in I just, the Syracuse movie, um, uh, it'll come out on Hulu. We don't know what the name of it will be yet. Cause it had to get renamed, but it'll come out in Hulu, like in the spring, I think of 2022, um, maybe February, who knows? Um, but there's like an Easter egg moment that me and this other actress planted, in like on the first day of filming because we had read the script and like it's just kind of fun to see if anyone catches mm-hmm. it and late and then to for you know for a, reveal, for a reveal or whatever and it's a thing that like we even told the director a couple days later I was like this is what we did and she was like oh that's great and it's just like fun like because no one really noticed and it was this fun little like Easter egg that like kind of cemented a little like, relationship storyline or whatever Um and it's just fun to. To have those moments, I don't know. I think it reminds me that I really like hearing when actors do that because it's like, yeah, you're a you're a part of the movie and you're a part of the film and like the tool and like the skill set that you are bringing is. We have to trust you with this with this character because we got so much other shit going on. We got to make sure the makeup on your face stays still, your hair <laughs> stays still. We got to make sure people are on time. We got to make sure there's grip, there's van, there's crafty. There's so much fucking shit involved, and if you can do little magic, like endow a character with how they eat, like that is literally what we need you to do. And I think Brad Pitt is just so good, regardless of how he is in real life. Has he done? Any- he we'll talk done later. It's complicated. <laughs> okay, thank you. Oh, I know, I know, because like young women, nah, right? It's, it's uh, always stuff
2: with his kids, but yeah, yeah. right Anyway,
1: cool movie. <laughs> cool movie. We still
0: cool movie. Like, cool, Bethy. Cool, George
1: Clooney. Cool, cool Clooney. Clooney. We still, yeah. Love...
2: He he yeah. used his Nest Cafe money to ha- buy a satellite to monitor conflict in sub-Saharan Africa. Or maybe Sahara He also Africa. got into a
0: fist fight with legendary dickhead David O. Russell on set to protect other actors with less cachet who David O. Russell was harassing. So he's cool.
1: And also, did you know that George Clooney was in seventeen pilots before? ER? I knew that he was in a bunch of TV before it. that. Yeah, seventeen pilots that did not go. Yeah, that did not like his job for a while was just being an actor in pilots, and then like speak. I mean, we're coming up on pilot season. I mean, like. It, it my my family, we talk about Clooney a lot. It's how my dad understands the business that I'm in. He'll always be like, well, you know, George Clooney. <laughs> like, he just has a lot of George Clooney facts. And honestly, they help. They really help. Making the transition from <laughs> TV um, to movies.
0: <laughs> Soderbergh yeah. took a flyer on Clooney in many ways. Like, the idea of transitioning from being a TV actor to a feature actor was much less of a thing at this point in the history of the industry. And now look at Clooney. Was that
1: Ocean's Eleven for
2: Clooney? No, out of, out right, of sight.
0: Out right. of sight was earlier days, yeah.
2: But he makes that joke when he's talking to the TV stars, and it's like a very meta nod. Um, That's so funny. I could talk about this movie
1: all day, but this is... I know, but we cannot because we're busy people with busy lives who are popular with our friends and family. I have to go case a joint and eat like a fruit cup while I do it. Nice, nice. I have to go kiss
0: both of my cats on the head. It's been an hour and 23 minutes.
1: Yeah. Oh no. And I have to make sure my doggy don't poop in my closet. 10 10 to the ghosts upstairs. <laughs> That's right. I have to sacrifice. I have to make sacrifices for them. It's been an hour and a half. You you were saying that (laughs) you've got
2: some movies coming out. Where can people find you online? Uh, What movies you got? What's going on with you?
1: Yeah, yeah. You can find me at Addy Mind. A D D I E Y O M I N D. Came up with that when I was young <laughs> and it is brilliant. Um and it'll never change. Um I'm addio mind on Instagram and Twitter. Well, I'll also be posting any updates like about the movies. But there's a movie called Mac and Rita with Diane Keaton. It's directed by Katie Asselton. She's amazing. Follow go follow Katie. Um, uh that was a great team and experience uh, to work on and then this other one um this hulu one uh that's directed by sammy cohen you guys should all check her out too s-a-m-m-i-c-o-h-e-n sammy cohen two really awesome directors that i am excited about their future and maybe one day we'll do a podcast episode about them <laughs> um because they're great but yeah but that's where you can find all that information and every month a dynasty typewriter <laughs>
2: thomas where can people find the show
0: the show is on twitter at movie bar pod and on instagram at movie bar underscore pod Ooh. bethy do you are, are you online do you have social media
2: i'm i'm very online i'm extremely online um i'm at BethyBSQU on twitter and at bethy squires on instagram and thomas you've got a twitter
0: I do, yeah. I'm on Twitter at uh, handsome underscore pal. Uh, And if you want to find me on Instagram, you're going to have to do some work.
1: You're going to have to do some recon. Some sleuthing. Oh, which we all know what to do. And on Venmo, you (laughs) can find me at Addy-Wyrich. Anybody else's Venmo? (laughs) (laughs) Last four digits of my phone number are... I'm on
0: Venmo at (laughs) Biggest Uncle. Of all time.
1: (laughs) Whoa.
2: (laughs) Uh, And as always, we're going to use our classic, classic sign-off. Ooh, denim like a jean. Goodbye.
0: Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins with show art by Lindsay Farrell and that theme you hear at the top that's Quentin Mulligan